After years of low employee engagement, the Secret Service this year finally saw morale and retention improvement. You've heard the stories. The hours are long. The agents are expected to be ready at a moment's notice. And the 2016 presidential campaign kept Secret Service agents so busy, the agency blew past the statutory limit on overtime pay. But in 2018, the Secret Service improved 11 points on the best places to work rankings. Susan Yarwood is the Secret Service's chief human capital officer. She tells Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco the path to improving employee engagement at that agency was a long, long process. I've been at the service a couple of years, just a little over a couple of years, came in at the end of the 26th campaign, and uh, I got in and saw this tremendously dedicated, passionate, no-fail workforce that loved working there. And a couple weeks later, the uh, the best places to work came out, and, and we were on the bottom, if not close to the bottom. And I have to tell you personally, I was absolutely stunned because what I was seeing in the numbers and in the ratings did not match what I was seeing and feeling. And I have a long history of being doing this kind of work, what I was feeling in the agency as I arrived. So I took a took some time and, and did a little digging and learned that the story of our employee engagement, our morale, it really started about five years ago. So we had a, a period of time where we had to make some really difficult decisions around sequestration around 2013 about what we were going to invest in, and we stopped hiring so that we could continue our on our no-fail mission. And uh, that resulted in increased forced overtime and in resulted in longer shifts. It, uh, and those kinds of things lead to, obviously, attrition, where we've always had an inconvenient lifestyle. People started voting with their feet and saying, this is unsustainable. It's not only inconvenient, but it's now unsustainable. And so attrition picked up. So about 2015, 2016, Director Joe Clancy, he worked with the administration and he got us money to do a huge hiring surge and invest in some retention initiatives that are fairly unique, at least uh, in the Secret Service. And as a result, we started an upward climb in terms of morale that really didn't start to get reflected in any of the employee engagement public surveys until until last year. We're pretty happy about that, but we know we have a long place, long way to go. So what were some of those retention incentives that you brought on board that are maybe unique to the Secret Service? Well, first of all, Secret Service, uh, we consider ourselves an expeditionary workforce. And whether you are in an investigative mission, whether you're in a mission support job, or whether you are in a protection mission, you have to be ready to deploy to support the protective mission at a moment's notice. Obviously, it goes more for the, the agents. So we rely on having a well-rested, well-trained, and well-supported, and that includes family support, group of professionals to do that. The hiring, getting the numbers up were important, but taking care of family and getting back to work-life balance and telling the employees that we understood how hard it was to be in this mission involved asking them what is it they needed. So a lot of our newer employees said, hey, you know, I'm a uniform division officer at the White House. I have a master's degree. I'd love to be able to pay off some of my student loans. Can we do student loan repayment? So sure enough, we invested in a huge student loan repayment program, and that's paying great dividends for us. 
one of the things we heard from the employees was the increasing cost of childcare. And also for our staff, it's also work schedules are very, very different. So we developed a child care subsidy program where we can directly pay child care providers that are accredited child care providers and take some of the burden off of the employees, not only for the cost, but also that allows those spouses who aren't really able to continue their careers as they're moving around. It gives them a little freedom to invest in, in themselves as well. We invested in bonuses for people that were willing to stay. For our uniform division officers who have the longest shifts, we went ahead and we invested in a retention, specific retention bonus for them. And as a result, attrition is starting to uh, go down and we can see that morale is, is picking up as well. But it's not just about money and those kinds of bonuses. It's really about the family life and it's the family support and, and whether or not you're getting days off, whether or not you're working eight-hour shifts versus 12-hour shifts. And so those are the more important improvements we think we've seen over the last couple of years. I know that overtime has been a big challenge for you all in recent years. Can you tell me how you've addressed that? I think it was maybe working with Congress, working with OPM. There was a whole you know, multi-factor approach to the overtime issue, right? Absolutely. So, uh, so Secret Service is, I think, fairly unique amongst agencies in that we have a lot of leave restriction time. And we have a lot of forced overtime. Again, we're ready to deploy and get the mission done, and we can't always plan for that. That Those were externally driven, and we accept that. We're excited by it. People hire into that because they know that's going to happen. But at the point that the overtime gets so high that, for example, the 2016 campaign, we had well over a 1,000 people that couldn't be compensated for their overtime because the hours were so high. It was so high above the pay cap, the statutory pay cap. The administration and Congress granted us relief in terms of authority to pay and then money to pay. And as we've hired, we've seen those numbers go down, but we're still using that authority and we'll use it through the end of the next campaign. So I imagine you can't offer any of these programs, any of these incentives without some money. So what has been the message that you've been giving to Congress and, and what story are you telling about the Secret Service workforce to tell appropriators that, you know, this kind of investment, it's going to be worth it? Let's talk about the different kinds of investments that we make. So, for example, uh, with a student loan repayment, we've got um, about 600 people that are participating, have participated in that over the past three years. And with that comes a three-year commitment with each amount of money we give them. So that translates into improved retention on the face. But it really also translates into better recruitment because a lot of agencies aren't, aren't making that. Congress gave us about $10 million dollars in 2016 to start these programs, and we've been able to roughly double it. But I think the real metric is that we've got about a third of the workforce participating in one of the programs. And so that tells us we're, we're hitting a home run. And, and to clarify, one of 
the student loan repayment? What other? The UD retention okay. bonus, the senior special agent bonus, tuition reimbursement. We've just embarked on a, a cybersecurity bonus program that gives you a percentage of your salary based on your level of cybersecurity training and the number and complexity of the forensics cases that you're working. So those kinds of those kinds of programs. So as you're tackling this over recent years here, I mean, what what are the conversations like between you and the other leadership about this issue? I mean, kind of walk me through the mindset of of you all as you approach this and and what are you hearing from the top leaders as to, you know, their priorities when it comes to engagement? Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you asked that. So, when I got there, Director Clancy had already made retention, hiring and training the number one priorities. Our mission is what we do, the priorities is how we is how we get there. So he had already done that and he had started on the retention initiative. So senior leadership was already having some good conversations. So when I got there, we started delving a little bit deeper into the numbers, started asking some more specific questions and really starting to do more longitudinal analysis of what was working and what wasn't working. We keep asking the questions. And I think probably the number one thing that we we talk about at the leadership table is transparency. Right. So we know what we're looking at. We know what we're doing. We know what we're hearing. But we don't always let the teams know that or traditionally we hadn't. So we've tried to drive a right up the middle of that in making sure that we are with the staff. We are not just communicating via official message and email. Director Alice, Director Clancy, and I'm sure our new Director Murray, they spend a lot of time in the field. They spend a lot of time walking around the grounds at the White House at something huge like the United Nations General Assembly. They're up there with the troops, and we're always asking the questions, hey, what do you need? What's working? What's not working? A couple days ago, I was at the Hispanic American Command Police Officers Association had a great conversation with a couple of the uniform division. They said that Director Alice walking around and asking those questions makes a difference. So we're asking and we're telling them what we're doing and then we're telling them if it didn't work and how we're going to readjust. So that incredible transparency, incredible honesty is something we talk about every day in the boardroom. So walk me through how that works. Is it just you and and senior leadership that approaches this or do you have a staff that look at the engagement scores, look at those questions on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and really dissect what you're seeing there? How does that work? So I do have a couple of people that are on my staff that look at those scores and start to do that analysis. But that's just data, right? That's not the story. And so the story comes when you start to ask the employees, tell us what this means. You go out to the different kinds of Secret Service employees, the agents, the uniform division officers, the mission support folks, and you say, hey, we noticed that we don't think we're doing very well in in a, a particular leadership area, for example. Tell us more specifically, because they're very broad questions. Tell us more specifically how that feels to you and what you'd like to see change. So this last year, we put together a leadership 
Advisory Council, and it is composed of Secret Service employees from all parts and in all grades of the organization, and there's equal representation. And so we took – for the first time, we took that the FedView scores to them and said, you help us with this. And we brought them together a couple days, and they helped us understand it, help us analyze it, and most importantly, help us put together a plan that we could use to attack the various issues. And then we just started attacking it one by one and being honest about what was working and adjusting where we needed to adjust. So that's, I think, probably – that and the continued communication across the workforce have been most valuable for us. What is communication like at the Secret Service? I imagine that, you know, when we ask other agencies how they address engagement issues and a lot of them bring up communication as a as a problem or a challenge that they see, we often hear about, oh, you know, we have town meetings or we send out emails or something like that. But I imagine that Given the nature of the Secret Service mission, you can't necessarily call everyone to into a room all at once and say, okay, let's talk about the latest results or how you're all feeling about your job. So what is the communication like? I would say it's really threefold. And let me also say, Nicole, that this issue about communications is is not just a federal issue, right? This is an issue that goes into every organization, and we work with some great organizations that help us understand how our communication issues or our employee engagement issues kind of match up not only to our federal partners and and colleagues, but in other sectors. So communication is a big issue everywhere. For Secret Service, we have the traditional law enforcement approach. We put out official messages, right? And those official messages will will say, you know, here are the results of something. Here's what we're going to do about it. But with Director Clancy and then Director Aulis after that, and now with Jim Murray, we've started a much more personal email campaign. You know, people are much more likely to read an email from the director than they are an official message. So we've personalized it. We've also targeted it in different ways. So we will take those messages through the lines of business. So getting to the protection squads, the protection details is it takes a different communication style and process than getting to the Secret Service criminal crimes task forces, right? So we use all of those different kinds of mechanisms, phone calls, town halls, SAC conferences where the director goes out to the field and, and talks to people. We use all of all of those. But I don't think that's different really from the way other organizations do it. It's just that we've increased that emphasis so much in the Secret Service. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because the Homeland Security Department, the chief of there, Angie Bailey, had she had described not only the work that the Secret Service had done within the past few years, but she talked about this approach to engagement that I hadn't necessarily heard a ton of other people really address. And it was something that you said earlier, which is taking care of the employee at work, but then also taking care of the employee, their family outside of the office. Can you talk a little bit more about that approach and maybe where you're headed with that approach in the future here? The Secret Service, I mentioned it's an expeditionary workforce. And so when you're looking for well-trained, well-rested, and well-supported professionals, the well-supported is all about what's going on at home. And so I worked in the Department of Defense for a very long time, and I've never seen more family support 
and I'm I'm a military spouse as well. I've never seen more family support than I've seen at the Secret Service. Um, the spouses are incredibly communicative with each other. If an agent, a uniform officer, has to drop everything and deploy for an unexpected event, the Agents and uniform officers that are not going will immediately band behind and make sure the family gets taken care of. And that goes across not just work-related issues. It goes across illnesses. It grows up, goes across some of the, the family events that we've had, I mean, that every employee might might have. So there is this incredibly strong bond. As a matter of fact, this inconvenient lifestyle, I, I think I mentioned before, when we do when we hire law enforcement professionals, we actually go to their home. We won't hire them unless we get a chance to talk to spouses or partners because we want them to understand that this is a really inconvenient lifestyle and make sure that they're having the potential employee and the support partner are having a good conversation about what that means. So that's traditionally worked really, really well with the Secret Service. But there are Challenges in the Secret Service that other agencies don't have, like I talked about the forced moves, that's really hard in this generation where you've got these incredibly talented spouses or partners that have these careers as well. So we're looking at things now like can we get employment priorities for spouses and partners uh, in the Secret Service? Can we find ways to make sure that they're connected with the right employment and support programs as they're moving around from job to job uh, and community to community? And then finally, we are, are looking at how we support the families through things like we have a very active chaplains program that helps with – we've got chaplains all over the country that volunteer for us, hun, over 100. And we've got a great employee assistance program that's a proactive program, not a reactive program. But our big effort this year is going to be on resiliency. We want to make sure that not only employees are resilient but the families are resilient as well. So that's a really multi-layered challenge. Can you describe a little bit more of what you mean by resiliency and how you're going to approach that? So, sure. The chaplain's program was one one answer to resiliency. We have this incredibly active employee assistance program where we've been putting on financial workshops for years for our employees. And it's not just for the employees. It's for the spouses when they can attend. Right now, we are looking at issues related to better partnerships right now. And we're doing that with the department. By partnerships, I mean anything from marriages to, you know, cohabitation to every kind of every kind of partnership because of that stress that's there. And so right now we're looking at how do we invest some of that strong relationship skills building into an organization that is culturally very secretive about any any personal or organizational problems. That's not an easy thing to do. It's not like you're going to your your local synagogue or, or church or it is something that we have to address very, very carefully. So so you you have a, a new leader who just came on board and he's been with the agency for I think multiple decades. You all mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. But what was the messaging like with employees as you had one director leave and another come on board? I mean, is there a communication, you know, tactic that you take with that or is it just 
you know, business as usual. We just have someone new in charge. Well, it's a little bit of both, actually, because the mission never stops, right? So uh, we didn't miss a beat in terms of anything we're doing or any of our priorities. But the Secret Service had and took a great opportunity to thank our previous director, Director Alice, who had been the first non-agent director in decades for the Secret Service. Certainly none of the current Secret Service uh, staff had had a non-agent at the top. And he was the right guy at the right time. He not only continued our our hiring and our training initiatives, but he asked us to really focus on leadership development as well. And so that's one of the things that we're doing this year is ensuring that we've got more integrated leadership development in our regular kinds of training and as well as specialized leadership development. But Director Murray is a incredibly well-respected leader in the service. He's done every kind of job that there is to do. And most importantly, he cares deeply about the employees and understands that taking care of the employees is how we get our mission done. So business as usual, right? Get the job done and make sure we're taking care of our people in the process. As a matter of fact, he talks about mission first, people always. Susan Yarwood, the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Secret Service, speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco.